Infowars in Hong Kong. Bali's holy water douches. In defense of marital rape. A Filipina janitor versus a penis. Welcome to the Coconuts Podcast, our look at the latest and greatest reporting from our eight newsrooms in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. I'm Todd Reese, and I'm the managing editor of Coconuts Bangkok. And I'm associate editor Tara Kamaltanavith. Hey, Tara. Hey, Todd. How's it going? It's it's going, but it's been a quite a slow week in Bangkok news-wise. It has. Week. I mean, there's actually there's a lot going on in, in all of our coconut cities oh, throughout the region. Looking um, at Bangkok, you, Hong Kong. <laughs> yes. Uh, Bangkok, we are, I guess, for, you know, lack of, we're between crises. Uh, We just emerged from a bombing. What's what's been going on with the investigation to that? Right. The investigation's been going slow. The officials remain tight-lipped. But what's interesting to me is that Suwanduset University released a poll this week of over 1,200 people that were surveyed. And 9 out of 10 people believe that bombing attacks are going to occur again in Bangkok. While 3 out of 4 people said their faith in the current government is diminished because of their mishandling of the investigation of the bombs. Well, I've got three things to say about that. Please. (laughs) First of all, bomb attacks in Bangkok seem to happen on a uh, triannual basis, more or less. Unfortunately so, yeah. Uh, But second of all... now, who, who, whose poll was this? This is Suan Dusit University. I called, I called Suan Dusit, actually, yes. and asked how they did this poll, and they said they went in person to different parts of Thailand. They gave you a very non-answer for the yes. methodology of their poll, which they, is... Yeah, they basically is, went out to the field and just collected, passed out a bunch of surveys yeah. in different provinces. Do you remember all the polling soon after the 2014 coup, which said that uh, the junta had a, like a 99% popular, like what? 97% of the people love the junta. Okay, now... Um, I question the polls. Well, and, and that's just it. You you ask these people, what's the margin of error? How did you conduct the survey? Right. Show us your data set. And they they got no answer. Right. So you called and they said, oh, we we, we talked to some yeah. people at busy places. We went to offices and markets and immersed ourselves and they didn't they didn't even publish their methodology in their like report, which is kind of weird. Well, this is why I would say you got to take polling stories with with a grain of salt. A huge one. The third thing I wanted to say, I actually have no memory of what it was, but these, but as to these bombing investigations, they do drag on, um, as, you've, as you've noted in, in your reporting, following the story, that, that it takes a while for things to be teased out. Right. So we know the process of justice, the wheels of justice, is uh, slow. Moves, moves slowly, which takes us to a story that we, I think I had both of our names on it the other day, yes. you did the principal reporting on. Um, which is also bomb-related. Some of our readers may remember, but I think even more have probably forgotten what happened four years ago and what is, why does that matter now? Right. So this Sunday on August 17th, it will be the fourth anniversary of the Erwin Shrine bombing. So as some of you may remember, the bombing killed 20 people and it injured up to, I think, 125 people, mostly tourists, because it was doing rush hour. It was a very busy, you know, tourist-heavy area. And most of those killed were actually uh, from, from China. Right. And four years later, the case has moved. The case has not moved. The case has been very slow. And out of the 400 witnesses they planned on calling to the stand, only 20 people so far have been actually taken to court. This was a huge deal. I mean, this is the biggest, deadliest attack of its type in sort of the modern, modern history of Thailand. 
And at the time, the authorities came under a lot of criticism for, for the progress of the investigation, for the things that they said. Um, there was a very funny moment when the police chief at the time went to Nana Plaza and stood in front of a go-go bar and gave this press conference in which he said, oh, they thought the suspects had gotten away. And behind oh. him was this giant sign that said, <laughs> suckers. The irony. <laughs> but within two weeks, they had made two arrests. They right. arrested two men from China's Xinjiang province. They're both ethnic Uyghurs there. Yes. And they've basically been on trial for four years now. Right. So I actually ended up calling Xu Shatganpai, which is a defense lawyer for the suspects. And he told me that the... After four years, both suspects still maintain that they are innocent. He sent me one of the suspects' testimony about what happened, his side of the story, and it was honestly really hard to read because he says he was tortured, like very brutally tortured, beaten. This you was know. Adam Karadag, the older of the two suspects. Yes. He, he alleged, you know, the police said they, they confessed right. soon after they were arrested, which, uh, you know, admittedly the police... The Thai police seem to have a almost magical ability to elicit confessions from people. Right. Um, uh, but then, well, around the time the trial was starting, Karadag uh, made ac- made allegations that he was tortured right. into confessing. In fact, he said a lot of the police top brass were present during right. those sessions. He said in the statement, he said he was actually tortured by the English interpreter, you know, mm. hired to be the middleman between him and and the cops. Interesting. Well, and not to say that defense suspects don't make those claims sometimes, but we don't know. And that's why we're supposed to have a trial. Exactly. That's the whole point of, of calling witnesses and hearing testimony. Well, we'll continue to talk about that at Coconuts, Bangkok. Let's talk about what else is going on. Let's get started with Hong Kong. Foreign powers are covertly fielding agent provocateurs to foment terrorism and insurrection against Chinese rule or fear that generations of freedom may end, have jolted Hong Kong's people into demanding self-determination. Those are the competing storylines as the battle for Hong Kong becomes one of information and perception. Chinese attempts to spin alternative facts through state-controlled media have increasingly framed the protests, which began 10 weeks ago over an unpopular bill, as terrorism. A woman shot in the eye by a projectile was embraced by protesters as a symbol of police brutality. Then a Chinese state broadcaster said she was shot by protesters. Then online, the same outlet claimed she was a paid agent. To the protesters, it's another example of social media being harnessed by the world's most repressive forces to spin counter-narratives in which they are the victims and the repressed the villains. Such accounts and images from this week's dramatic occupation of the airport by protesters have deepened mainland rage, where many are calling for Beijing to send in the troops. Either way, analysts fear that anger, coupled with warnings from Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam, risk painting China into a corner and forcing its hand. Adding to that anxiety Thursday were new images of paramilitary forces and vehicles massing near the border with Hong Kong. Whether they're just another part of the messaging war or something more ominous remains to be seen. Indonesians this week were outraged by a video shot by a Czech couple behaving in a way many found extremely disrespectful inside a Hindu temple. (laughs) (laughs) To the tourists, it was likely just a silly moment in which the boyfriend playfully splashed water on his girlfriend's ass But many angry Indonesians said the use of holy water from a shrine was extremely uncool, to say the least. 
After receiving a torrent of criticism, the couple apologized, expressed regret, and admitted they lacked knowledge about the temple and its holy status. We are so sorry about the video from yesterday. We had no idea that there's some holy water or that there is a holy temple, so we really didn't want it to do anything bad. We hope you're gonna forgive us. They also said that because they were atheists, they were unable to recognize that it was a holy place. That apology fell short to many Indonesians. Some said it appeared insincere and blasted the couple for using their atheism as an excuse and said not knowing wasn't a valid excuse. So the viral incident seemed to reignite this debate over how tourists should behave when they visit the island. And on Tuesday, the Bali governor, Iwayan Coaster, actually issued a threat saying tourists who disrespect holy places should be sent back home. Mmm, naughty tourists. A transgender Filipina found out it doesn't matter who you are inside, but where you pee from at a Quezon City mall this week. The Farmer Plaza Mall apologized to the woman after she was handcuffed and arrested after being denied use of a restroom there. Gretchen Diaz says she was about to enter the women's restroom at the mall when a female janitor blocked her way and told her she must use the men's room instead. That's when Diaz began recording the situation, which really seemed to set the confrontation friendly, but camera-shy staffer off. You still have a penis. If you post that video, I'll sue you. Turn that off. Why are you taking my video? Diaz was forcibly taken to another part of the mall, after which police arrived and took her away in cuffs for allegedly harassing the janitor. She was only freed from the station 10 hours after first hearing the call of nature, after the janitor apologized. The Philippines' LGBT community was outraged, and Quezon City Mayor Joy Belmonte condemned the incident as a violation of the city's gender discrimination ordinance. In a statement disavowing the employees' actions, the mall's owners said their apology extended, quote, not just to the LGBT community, but to the public in general for the actions of said crew member. A few weeks ago, we reported on the suicide of a gay Myanmar librarian that was allegedly provoked by homophobic bullying by his colleagues at Myanmar Imperial University. There was some hope after the nation's Human Rights Commission said it would investigate. That review concluded Wednesday, with the commission declaring the university and its staff blameless. Even more, the commission said 26-year-old Jazin Win took his life because he was, quote, mentally weak. One commissioner said absolutely no evidence could be found that the university librarian was bullied. They must not have looked at what the young man posted online himself or spoken to his family about. Before his death, the librarian posted screenshots of degrading comments directed at him from his colleagues. He also wrote that they forcibly outed him before making his life miserable. The university has since apologized to the family and suspended three employees identified in the chat logs. The victim's aunt said that although she hasn't read the report yet, the commission was wrong to deny her nephew was bullied. Rights groups had hoped that a damning report would be a turning point in a country where same-sex relations remain illegal. And now to Indonesia, where cleric Tengku Zulkarnain infamously went on TV last year to rant against the concept of marital rape. He and others are opposed to a bill that would strengthen legal protections for women against gender-based violence in the Muslim-majority nation. 
His comments have since come to embody the belief that a husband should have ownership over his wife's body. If desire wants, then it must happen. The wife can just lie down or sleep. It doesn't hurt. With the story for us today is Coconuts Jakarta's managing editor, Andra Nazri. As troubling as that statement was, the sad truth is, I've come to expect such misogyny from ultra-conservative figures like him. What really surprised me, though, and in a bad way, was that such a disgustingly objectifying sentiment about women was shared by people I'm close with, including friends and family. Like Zulkarnain, they also can't fathom the idea that husbands must seek consent for sex with their wives. I've also noticed that there's a resistance in Indonesia to recognizing that marital rape was a real threat to so many women's lives. Why is that? The evidence for sexual power dynamics being the cause of violence are all too common. In July alone, Indonesia saw three disturbing cases of extreme domestic violence. In one of the most extreme cases, a husband slit his wife's throat right in front of their small child because the wife refused to sleep with him. Thankfully, the woman survived, but there's no telling the trauma she and her child will go through for the rest of their lives. The National Commission on Violence Against Women denounced the attack. But when they warned about the dangers of husbands forcing their will on their wives, many Indonesians scoffed at the idea. One tweet directed at the commission caught my eye, and I quote, If a wife refuses her husband's advances while she's not on her period, that's the real sin and is condemned by the angels. Do you understand, you dumb whores, wrote Twitter user Nay underscore Shehab. That belief about angels condemning wives who don't serve their husbands is rooted in Islamic teaching. But a respected Indonesian cleric named Hussein Mohammed told me that deeply embedded patriarchal values, not Islam, are to blame for much of Indonesia's disconnect with the issue of marital rape. He said that those values are often backed by narrow interpretations of religious texts, cherry-picked by those attempting to deny the existence of marital rape. Hussein Muhammad pointed out that verses in the Quran calling for husbands and wives to love and cherish each other are often ignored by those seeking to keep men on a moral and sexual pedestal over women. Hussein Muhammad said he believes that patriarchy is embedded in cultures and there's been a centuries-long struggle against it. The idea that all that's good is determined by men is prevalent not just in Islam, but around the world and across cultures. So how to address this problem? We know that official data puts the number of marital rape victims at a couple hundred per year, numbers that are almost certainly underreported. The National Commission on Violence Against Women also told me that Indonesian law does not adequately protect women from marital rape. So I spoke about the subject with Dr. Dina Afrianti, a research fellow at Australia's La Trobe Law School who writes about women's issues in Indonesia. She told me she believes that as long as conservative voices drown out those calling for gender-based progress in Indonesia, gender equality will be difficult to reach. Meanwhile, groups like the National Commission on Violence Against Women will continue to raise awareness about marital rape. They believe that asking men in general to confront horrific stories about marital rape is key to making it unacceptable. As the commission's Mariana Amirudin told me, if people knew about the cases, they would be angered by marital rape as well. Well, thanks for that, Andra. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. From Bangkok, this is Todd Reese. And I'm Tara Kamaldanabeth. You can find all these stories and more at coconuts.co. Better yet, become a Cocoa Plus member at coconuts.co slash membership. 
The Coconuts Podcast is written and produced by Todd Ruiz and Tarek Moltenavith. Our executive producers are Byron Perry and Chad Williams. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>